Uh, because we're people of faith, I think our theology needs to change. For so long, for the last 2,000 years, the uh, theology, church doctrine has been written by white male theologians, uh, mostly European. So that has been so embedded in how we understand God. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Trump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Well, our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim and Dr. Graham Hill. They're the co-authors of a new book, Healing Our Broken Humanity. Grace and Graham, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here with us. you. Thanks for having us. Now, before we jump into the conversation about the book, uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Grace, you're an associate professor of theology at uh, Earlham School of Religion in Indiana. You've authored over 20 books. You host a podcast. You write for Sojourners. So where did you find time to actually have this conversation with us? By waking up early in the morning for me. <laughs> anyway, um, it's just great. I, I think uh, because I'm a recent podcast host, I find the podcast is such an important medium to convey information and ideas and, and thoughts about especially new books that are coming out. So I really appreciate this invitation to join you today to share um, this wonderful book that I got to write with Graham. Um, you know, Graham and I click very well and he works through the night and when I wake up, you know, it's all there and then it's vice versa because he's, he's in Australia. So it's just wonderful to join you today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Tell us a little bit more about your work um, in, in the religion department. So um, I teach at the seminary part of Erlen College, which is um, Erlen School of Religion, and I teach theology, so I teach the intro. I'm also um, teaching interfaith dialogue and um, ethics, so the courses rotate. Um, and, you know, I've written 20 books, and they are diverse, um, you know, things to do with the church, with theology, with Asian American um, women, uh, racism, discrimination, um, and that is covered here in our book, To Healing Our Broken Humanity, the discrimination that people uh, experience. It's not just people of color, but um, whatever identity that you may find. So my work kind of goes and it spreads, um, it spreads out, and I do a lot of work on pneumatology too. So how do we understand God? who is spirit and how is 
how do we experience God and how do we understand the presence of God in our lives, in our daily lives. So I do cover a lot of area uh, as a professor of theology, and I enjoy it very much. And so the podcast that I started this earlier this year, Badang Podcast, you know, I am living in between two cultures, I feel, all the time, Asian American and um, here the white society so i use a lot of terminology from asia so madang means or it, it's to describe a courtyard so the traditional korean homes it's very small but we all have a gate of um, usually a metal fence around the home and when you enter the area that you enter is madang and there's usually a small table in the summertime when the weather's good people sat around and ate their meals people sat there to discuss and gossip and share stories so that's the kind of uh, feeling i have for my new podcast madang where authors most of them are authors who come and share their work where they can feel comfortable to share new ideas new thoughts and have a wonderful conversation with me and everyone is invited Wonderful. Now, Graham, you serve as the research coordinator at Sterling Theological College and serve as the director of the Global Church Project. Unfortunately, Grace has you beat. She's written 20 books. You've written <laughs> just 10, just 10. Uh, so, um, but I wonder if you might tell us about your work at the Global Church Project. Yeah, so um, my role at the college is as a research coordinator and recently taken on the role as principal, which is a I guess the equivalent of the, the American um, uh, president of a theological college. Um, at the Global Church Project, uh, my passion has been about profiling the voices um, of the majority world, Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, the Middle East, um, indigenous and First Nations peoples, profiling people's voices so that we can learn uh, from those voices about what it means to reinvigorate our mission, deepen our community, diversify our theology, and really discover what it means to be God's local and global people. So the globalchurchproject.com was a, a ministry that I started about five years ago. Uh, it's got some great traction from around the world. We've done about 350 interviews with Christian leaders from around the world, um, and they've been produced as films and as podcasts. And it's been exciting to see the, the interest in what God is doing globally. And so my passion is that Asians would learn from Africans, Africans would learn from Latin Americans, Latin Americans would learn from indigenous peoples, and so on. So there'd be a global conversation, and together we might be this extraordinary mosaic that is the people of God. Uh, Graham, how has your approach to your work changed as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, it's uh, been interesting. Well, I haven't been able to do the travel that I used to do. Uh, the interesting thing about being in Australia is that everywhere, uh, Grace will tell you this, everywhere is a long way away. Um, <laughs> so when I would travel anywhere, you sort of, the, the closest country we can go to is probably about, oh, aside from New Zealand, is about 12 hours flight. Uh, so you know, I would spend a lot of my life on airplanes traveling around the world, um, often 20, 24 hours to get anywhere, actually, uh, from Australia. Um, but that's changed, of course, with uh, COVID. Um, and as access to many countries has, has shut down, a lot of more of the interviewing now is happening using the technology. And we're doing a lot more research, I think, into um, some of the publications that Majority World, Indigenous, Diaspora, and um, uh, First Nations uh, peoples are doing. I love how you're like, you know, the closest country is, you know, just New Zealand, you know, Middle Earth, uh, as <laughs> yeah, it were, right. to, to the rest of the world. Uh, Grace, what about you? How has your work changed as a result of this pandemic? Oh, it's changed a lot, too. So uh, like Graham, I used to um, travel a lot either here in the U.S. or internationally. And my last trip was um, just to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Um, I was preaching there and there for a meeting, and that was my last meeting, March 2020. So I haven't done much travel. I've been doing a little bit um, just within the United States. 
but speaking mostly um, through Zoom or other medium. So it's been interesting. And then uh, on top of all that, though, I got really ill um, last October. So that has kind of slowed me down. So I'm, you know, my work has slowed down drastically. And I'm thinking of cutting away stuff that um, I used to do and then maybe not do anymore. So it's bringing another perspective on life and um, trying to find out what's important uh, for me and for family and my work, um, how I see my work being um, shared and how my work can impact um, the greater society. So it's it's been a time of reflecting and being stuck at home. and um, But it's been good. I can't complain. Uh, we're all still very healthy and safe. My father got COVID and I didn't think he was going to make it, but he made it and he's fine. Um, but it's been a good time to reflect and think about what's important to me and uh, my own ministry of writing and teaching and um, just thinking theologically a lot. So, but I'm looking forward to going back to normal soon. <laughs> I'm just, my family is in Toronto, so I haven't seen them for, I don't know, almost two years now. So I, I, yeah. that's one thing. I'm waiting for the border to open so uh, we can visit. I know we can visit, but you know, the quarantine and the testing, it's too much. So I'm just waiting for the border to kind of open so I can just go for a few days and see them and, and come back. So you have a new book out, Healing Our Brokenness, uh, Practices of Revitalizing the Church and Renewing the World. This book is an invitation uh, to churches and to individuals uh, to consider their part in renewing God's world. Uh, you wrote, the church needs a compelling vision of healed and whole Christian community and redeemed Christian social imagination. The church needs fresh practices before a watching world. I'd love for each of you to share uh, what the underlying motivation was for, for writing this book. And Grace, we'll start with you. Okay. Well, to begin, um, I met Graham uh, as he was traveling around the world interviewing. Um, so um, I forget what year, maybe four or five years ago when he was starting off. So he came um, to the United States and I was doing something at Princeton Seminary. So we met there and he interviewed me. So um, it was very exciting to meet Graham. And while during the interview, uh, we thought, why don't we work on a project, on a book possibly? And this is the result uh, from that conversation. Much of my work, um, as I described earlier, is kind of spread out. And I remember one time I was at Duke Divinity School and they interviewed me and they said, you know, your work is all over the place. And I said, well, it is, but there is something that kind of ties it all together. It's not like random things that I'm working on, like church and and pneumatology. They, there is a tie, and it is kind of tied in with my whole outlook and from my own personal journey. So much of my work kind of comes from my life journey. And I was born in Korea, um, and our family immigrated to Canada in 1975. So I started my kindergarten studies um, in London, Ontario, which is a small city two hours west of Toronto. And, you know, my experiences of racism, discrimination uh, within the education system, you know, from my classes and just living in the community that I lived in has stayed with me all throughout my life. And it has kind of driven my work and my theological writing and my teaching because racism is a huge problem around the world, but particularly here in the U.S. So it has driven my work and also um, growing up in the church, um, experiencing sexism in the church has also kind of informed kind of my understanding of theology, have challenged my understanding of who God is. So those two things, um, sexism and racism, has, have driven my writing and my work. So even in this book, you know, it's not about just racism and sexism. It is dealing with a lot of the different dimensions of brokenness that we experience in the church and in the faith community. So Graham and I, you know, him writing from his perspective as a white male theologian living in Australia, which is a different context 
from me as an immigrant in Canada, and now I teach here in the U.S. So I thought the richness of our diverse experiences and him coming from a white male perspective was very um, enriching in the writing process because this book tries to address a lot of the brokenness. And, and you know, I, I've experienced so much racism and discrimination and sexism, but Graham was there to kind of um, share his perspective and how he was part of some of these problems. And so the humility that Graham um, was able to exhibit while we were writing was so uh, uplifting for me. You know, I don't get that in many places. I don't get that from uh, communities that I am part of. So I just appreciate it when I do find it. And so together writing this was a really good um, journey. It was a very good faith journey for me. Um, a good learning process. I learned a lot about Australia. And after the book came out, we did a book launch in Australia and to kind of uh, meet Graham again and to walk with him. And he kind of, you know, took me, um, I took my daughter with me. So we did a lot of traveling, saw the beautiful sights of Australia and just learning the history of Australia, you know, and, you know, me reflecting on the genocide here in the U.S. against the Native Americans because we do talk about reconciliation and then the enslavement of Africans, the indentured workers of Asian workers, what we did with the land of Mexico and what we continue to do with uh, what happens at the border and uh, Latin, the Latinx community. All these things are very difficult uh, things that the church you know, the church is engaged in a lot of these activities against people. So, um, you know, our book attempts to kind of look at, you know, we do look at all the brokenness, but then we want to know how we can work towards healing this brokenness. So there's a lot that is um, covered in the book. And maybe I should end here so that Graham can share more before I get into the whole book. <laughs> But thank you so much for allowing me to share that part. Yeah, well, uh, just a small note. I thought part of the deal of doing this interview was that I get to come to Australia as well. So uh, we'll have to work that out. <laughs> well, you can come I, to Pennsylvania too. I would love that. I, I love the countryside of Pennsylvania. So, uh, Grant, what about for you? What was the underlying uh, drive behind this book? Yeah, it's interesting thinking through the genesis of a book like this and um why I have a particular interest in profiling the voices um, and experiences and stories of um, uh, diverse voices from around the world. And there's probably two ways I would talk about the genesis of this book for me. The first would be that I grew up in a um, poorer part of uh, Sydney, probably the poorest part of Sydney, and still even to this day, the part of Sydney that's considered, probably the part of Australia actually, that's considered to have the most crime, poverty and violence. Um, to give you some background, even though I have a PhD in theology, um, I was the first person in my family to finish school. Um, so it was a very, very poor area. And a lot of the kids that I grew up with were uh, Indigenous children and what I noted as I was growing up, and a lot of my friends were Indigenous uh, children, I noted that while my family was very poor, like while my father had to work many jobs and they struggled to put food on the table, that my Indigenous um, friends and brothers and sisters struggled much more than we did. Um, and I think that probably planted the seeds in my heart for wanting justice um, for Indigenous peoples. The, the second story that I would tell in terms of the genesis of this of this book for me would be, and in terms of the seeds in my own heart, would be I was speaking at a conference in Manila in about 10 years ago. And uh, I said to my wife, do you mind if I fly over to Manila and speak at the conference? She said, fine. I said, to save money, can I stay at a backpackers hostel? And she said, sure, if that floats your boat, go for it, because she knows what I'm like. So I was staying at a backpacker's hostel uh, in the, at night time and then going across to the conference. 
And I was woken up to the sound of sobbing one morning and I looked over my bed and there were, there in the bunk bed below me was an elderly Asian man. I discovered that he was Vietnamese, kneeling beside his bed, weeping over an open Bible. I got to know him over the course of the week. And what I discovered was that he was a Vietnamese pastor who about 30 years uh, earlier had planted a church of about a dozen people in his home. And that had grown to about 40,000 people. And over the course of the week, he told me stories that sounded like the book of Acts. You know, stories of persecution and suffering and imprisonment and martyrdom, but also extraordinary stories of growth. You know, he was one of four brothers. They, they were all pastors in this movement. Each of his three brothers, had their families had received a knock on the door. They'd been taken away. They'd never been seen again. Yet in spite of all this persecution and suffering, the church had grown. But what really disturbed me was that every day I would listen to these stories in the morning as I would pray with this elderly man. But then I would go to the conference and all of the speakers looked like me. They were white, male, university educated, middle-aged men, English-speaking men. And we were speaking to a sea of Asian faces. And I remember going home saying to my wife, this is really disturbing because there's a disconnect here between the voices that are profiled and what God is doing in the world. And I begin to imagine the stories of these, of these thousands of people gathered. Um, people like my friend, this Asian, this um, Vietnamese pastor, whose story are much more extraordinary and significant than my own. And yet my voice was being heard and his voice was not. And that kind of planted the seed in my heart of how do we listen to voices from all over the world and how do they teach us about renewing the church? And a lot of the practices that develop in this book come directly out of Grace and myself listening closely to voices that are not often heard, voices that challenge us towards justice and reconciliation and lament and repentance and being a new kind of church that witnesses before a watching world. So, you know, one of the challenges of, of this approach to revitalizing the church is the mindset many people have about their relationship with the church, especially in America. The, the church for so many is a, a commodity of faith. Uh, you know, I'll go here, I'll check the worship experience off the box. Maybe I'll give a little money. I'll let my kids benefit from your programs. But what you've conveyed in the book is is an authentic expression of the church as as a genuine community. So how do faith leaders intersect people with this type of intentionality when their relationship with the church is such a, a passive commodity? Um, Graham, we'll get your thoughts first. Yeah, that, that's a great thought. Um, you know, we, we've had uh, decades of church growth theory that has... Um, talked about the homogenous unit principle where churches grow most rapidly when they uh, are filled with people who look and speak and sound like themselves. Um, and where the, the sort of the overarching theme has been catered to consumerism, catered to a desire for homogenous gatherings, catered to the, the sexy, the trendy, the glamorous, um, you know, you see all of these these pastors taking selfies with with rock stars and uh, celebrities, and in the face of all of that, the world has looked at a church that is um, an expression of the injustices, the divisions, the the conflicts, the exclusions of the world. It's a poor witness before a watching world. And I think Grace and I together feel that a different kind of church is required, a church that reflects the heart of Jesus Christ. You know, when I'm doing training with pastors, I, I try to say to them, look, all of the techniques that have been um, offered to us as Christian leaders for growing and developing the church are not worth a penny, are not worth a cent compared to being a people who genuinely love our neighbours who serve the least and the last and the broken, whose hearts are soft, whose eyes are moist, whose prayers are passionate, 
and who seek to live with integrity and grace and humility within our own neighbourhoods. God is calling us to be this kind of people. And if the church can be a kind of people who remember that what the world really wants, I think, from the church is integrity, humility, love, service, honesty, repentance, lament for the way in which we've been complicit in the sins and the injustices of the past. You know, and sometimes when I talk this way, uh, you know, sometimes Christian leaders will say to me, Graeme, stop naming the faults or the sins or the injustices that have been perpetuated in the life of the church because you're going to give the church a bad name. And I often say, actually, it's not naming our sins that give us a bad name. It's seeking to hide those sins. It's pretending like they don't exist. The best thing that we can do is honestly name our own brokenness to be clear that we desire to be repentant and to lament and to journey with others, other faiths, other religious and uh, community groups that are seeking to bring healing and reconciliation to the most broken, the most vulnerable, the most um, silenced people in our world. And when the church seeks to be that kind of church, I believe that the world begins to notice that there's been a significant change. Looking to learn about pastoral care in order to enhance your skills as a minister, lay leader, deacon, or member of a community? BSK's Pastoral Care Certificate allows students to earn credentials in pastoral care through a short three-course certificate. Students working towards a certificate in pastoral care will integrate knowledge and experience from both courses and experience in order to develop deeper skills in caring for persons who are in crisis and are suffering. The certificate is a great strategy to improve one's care and counseling as a congregational pastor and other congregational leaders. It will prepare persons to serve in chaplaincy settings, whether paid or volunteer, where a degree and professional certificate as a chaplain is not required, such as law enforcement, fire departments, some prisons, and extended care facilities. It requires nine hours graduate credit that may be rolled into a graduate degree program. BSK certificates may be continuing education for those already earned a graduate degree or a starting place for those considering an MDiv. Learn more at bsk.edu backslash options. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Grace, as you you know, think about uh, calling people to this beautiful, holistic, uh, community-centric model of the church, how, how do local faith leaders try to do spiritual formation and navigate this with people who treat the church like a commodity or uh, an individualistic, self-centric spirituality? Yeah, I, you know, because as I mentioned earlier, I, I kind of grow up in the two cultures, the Asian culture and um, this American white culture. You know, I do draw a lot from my Asian heritage growing up because of all the racism that I experienced. I try to remove myself from my Asianness, from my Asian heritage, because it was so embarrassing. Um, trying not to speak Korean, trying to look more white, act more white, to be accepted. And then it wasn't until, I, you know, in my mid-20s that I realized, why should I be so ashamed of my heritage? When I look in the global world, um, Asians comprise of 60% of the world population. We are a large group of people. Uh, we, I should not be ashamed of my heritage. You don't get to choose how you're born or where you're born. You are born. You are given this wonderful life. So um, in my theological journey, I have drawn a lot from my Asian culture. And one of them is 
this community versus this individualism found in the Western world. Um, you know, growing up here in the U.S., everything is I, 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 me, me, me. And the church is one example of it. You know, I go, so I must get something. You know, I give and I must uh, get a program for me and my kids. Um, you know, the church was not about, it was never I. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus didn't say, um, my father, it was our father. It was a very communal kind of understanding, you know, our father who art in heaven. So I get that very well and clear from my Asian heritage. We rarely use the pronoun I. I, I even though in a sentence I may be inferred, we just don't say it. Um, instead of saying I went to the store, we would just say went to the store and everybody knows it was I. So that's one way. And then also we use plural our for uh, an individual thing. So rather than saying in the English language, my house, we would say our house. We don't say my church, we say our church. Uh, we don't say my kids, we always say our kids, even though you may be a single parent. You don't say my husband or my spouse, you say our husband, even though you're only married to one person. But that is how we view the world. It's a very communal understanding. And so I think in our understanding of the church, we should look at it as um, this communal understanding that we belong, we are together. Um, Africans um, have a good way of understanding this too with their language of Ubuntu. Um, and so I think when we understand that the church is the body of Christ, uh, you know, the wholeness of Christ, you cannot live without the stomach or the heart or the lungs. You need every part of it. It's this holistic understanding, this community of Christ, this fullness of God, fullness of God where one or two or more are gathered, I am there. I think when we understand that the church is not a commodity, it's, we don't commodify the church. You know, there is so much commodification of everything here in the U.S. particularly. If we move away from that, if we move away from this individualism that is so embedded in our culture, in our own philosophy, in all of kind of Western philosophy, moving away from that and embracing more of this communal understanding, this wholeness, this both and, I think then um, we can view the church differently. Then it will push us to work for the justice, the social justice that our book is trying to aim for. It will move us to work towards reconciliation because we need everybody. It's not just a me church, it is an our church. We need the, uh, the healing, not just of our fingers, we need healing of our whole body. And there is so much brokenness. The church kept saying slavery was okay. The church kept saying, you know, we can be racist. It's all right. The church kept saying it's okay to kill Native Americans here in, in American land. Also in Canada, you know, now they're finding all these um, burial grounds of children in the residential schools. And we know of the history also in Australia and in different parts of the world. We did it in the name of Christianity. We did all these sinful things. So our book is aiming towards um, healing all this brokenness. It's not one kind of brokenness. There are different layers of brokenness. So we need to work on this. So the church, you know, it is going to be a place of sorrow and pain and of lament and asking for, for forgiveness. It's not this thing where, oh, everyone goes and is happy and you get something out of it. It is a lot of heart-wrenching things that needs to happen in the church. So our book kind of walks through that and, and I'm thankful for people who are using it as individuals by themselves and as a book study and as a community outside the church. There are lots of study groups. So I'm glad that people are using it because we need to work through these issues 
as individuals and as a people of faith and as a community. You know, this this last year um, is, has been incredible in the sense of many people's eyes have finally been open to the, the reality of systemic racism, toxic masculinity, political idolatry. More people uh, than ever before are are actually talking about fighting injustice in our communities and our world. More pastors are preaching bold sermons about injustices of our world and, and calling people to action. And yet there are so many of our fellow church members that just aren't there. Theologically, they haven't made the connection. Politically, they support a different kind of agenda. And it's easy to believe that a strongly worded book or a fiercely preached one-off sermon will convince people to become agents of justice. But I've I have found that that spiritual formation away from the pulpit and relationships and real life experience are just as impactful as my time in the pulpit. So I, so I wonder what what does this practically look like on a day to day, week to week basis to get our congregations to a place of openness to be agents of restoration of justice in our world. Um, Grace, we'll start with you. I think um, because we're people of faith, I think our theology needs to change. I think, uh, you know, for so long, for the last 2000 years, the uh, theology church doctrine has been written by white male theologians, mostly European. So that has been so embedded in how we understand God. For example, I think if you ask anybody in the pews, everyone would say God is an old white man sitting up on a throne up in the clouds. That has been so ingrained that so many of us don't challenge that understanding. Where did it come from? From white male European theologians who painted a God, literally painted a God, uh, Sistine Chapel and our stained glass windows, if you visit many churches around Europe, and paintings and museums in Europe, they literally painted a picture of God as a white male God. But is really God white and is really God male? Probably not. God is spirit. And if we understand and if we challenge the 2,000 years of this history, Another example would be Jesus. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, a refugee into Egypt, must have been a darker-skinned uh, male. But for the last 2,000 years, even myself, I had a picture of a white male Jesus sitting in, in my living room when I was growing up because that's what the white missionaries told us in Korea. And that's what is painted and stained glass windows all around the world. But is Jesus a white male? No, he was not a white male. So I think a lot of this, you know, we need to challenge theology. We need to challenge whiteness. You know, it's not just our book. There's a lot of new books out there challenging white nationalism, Christian nationalism, this whiteness. If we don't challenge white theology, I don't know if people will ever start to fight these isms that are around us, um, sexism and racism and all these isms that we experience in the church. So I think firstly, we have to challenge theology. We have to recognize what has been part of our 2000 years history. You know, I, I sometimes say, because when I look at Christianity here in the U.S., and I'm not saying all Christianity, like all Christians in the U.S., but what I see on social media and sometimes uh, in this white evangelical Christianity that's presented and so many people love it, is not, it really to me is not Christianity. It feels to me this Americanity, kind of shaping Christianity draping American flag over it, this American exceptionalism, this, uh, you know, manifest destiny. It, it is really scary. So our book, you know, doesn't get into all of this, but it does challenge this underlying ism. You know, is this really Christianity or is this something that Americans have kind of uh, draped their flag over and presented it to the rest of the world? We have to be careful. Christ 
you know, we look at what Christ is teaching us. He was out there. He went to the well and he talked to the Samaritan woman, a woman that was despised. And people don't talk to women at that time, but Jesus reached out. Jesus healed the lepers. You know, lepers were the most marginalized, the outcast people. You know, they, you know, people were afraid of them. They, you know, they're going to spread their disease. Jesus went and healed them. Jesus was with the poor. He healed the poor. His message was this love, you know, love our neighbor, love our enemies, you know, message of healing, healing our brokenness. And when we get to the message of Jesus, and if our Christianity doesn't align with that, we kind of have to sit back and say, is this Christianity or is this something else that we are preaching? To just glorify ourselves, maybe make money along the way, uh, make a name of ourselves. We have so many celebrity Christians out there. You know, there's many motivations for this. So, you know, our book wants to challenge this. Is this Christianity or is this something else? Because, you know, even Christ challenged this, you know, uh, a wolf in sheep skin, you know. So, uh, you know, when we get to the gospel, you know, our book is very biblical. We have a lot of biblical passages um, challenging us. And, and then, you know, each of the chapters end with questions either to ask yourself or in your, in your Bible study or your study groups to see how we can move forward to build this church that is really Christocentric, really um, claiming the good news of the gospel. So, um, you know, it is these practices for revitalizing the church and renewing the church. We don't have all the answers, but we attempt to, to provide some of our answers from our limited perspective. Yeah, you, you ask a great question, um, Andy, about the, the problem when you look at a, like a series of topics like justice, reconciliation, uh, lament, <clears throat> is they can feel very large and abstract and maybe a little bit out of people's reach. And so... One of the dangers with that is that people might feel a little bit disempowered. You know, they, they look at these grand themes and they think, well, what do I do with that? And, and what does my church do with that? And, and what do I do when there's opposition to these things around me, even amongst fellow believers? And I, I think my response to that would be that there are, there are a, a fourfold response. I'd say make it concrete, make it personal make it communal, and make it local. And by concrete, I mean is that um, is take one of the practices, like let's say, for instance, lament, and um, give your small groups an opportunity to write group laments together. So it's a concrete practice where they can learn to write laments. And so at the end of the, um, of the chapter of lament, we describe how you can write a a lament around a meal. We call it a table lament. So make it concrete, make it personal. And by that, I mean, as a leader, I need to get up and I need to share how am I doing these things in my own life? So for instance, how am I thinking about the way in which I've been in a complicit in injustices and how I'm seeking to address that? So for me, for instance, um, as a Christian leader, as a pastor, I'm conscious of the fact that there are a significant proportion of the women in our churches who have been, who are survivors of domestic violence. Um, statistics tell us that it's a horrifying percentage of the women in our churches that are survivors of domestic violence. But I'm conscious as a Christian leader that many of those women have not come to me to tell me their stories of suffering and abuse. For whatever reason, maybe they haven't seen me as a safe person. Maybe the systems or the institution has made them afraid to come forward and speak up. And so I'll get up on a Sunday and I'll say to the women in the church, there are many of you that have suffered in silence and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way in which our church has not been a safe place for you. I'm sorry that you've not felt that we've listened I'm sorry that I've not been the kind of pastor that you felt that you could go to. And so I'm making it personal. And I'll, I'll also get up and tell stories about um, 
you know, ways in which I'm seeking to address these issues in my own life. So make it concrete, make it personal, make it communal. And by that, I mean, when I was taught to preach, I was taught that you take a passage, you unpack the passage exegetically, and then you apply it to individual lives. So you say, you know, you, you work through a passage and then you say, what does this mean for you? And what I've begun to feel is that that's catering to individualism. And so now what I do is I say that this isn't just about you. This is about us. It's about a lot of yous in a community of faith. It's about individuals within a group of people. And so what is this? So when we go through this passage, I try to use a passage as casting a vision a vision for what it means for us as a new people, a people of justice, a people of reconciliation, a people of hope, a people of repentance. It's not just about Graham or Grace or Andy or John. It's about us together. So make it concrete, make it personal, make it communal, and then finally make it local. And by that I mean, what does this particular theme you know, like reconciliation mean, not for the United States of America, not for Australia, but for your neighbourhood. Where is there broken relationships? Where are people not listening to each other? Where is there hurt and damage in your street, in your cul-de-sac? Where does reconciliation need to happen in your local neighbourhood. Start local. Think locally. So for me, the way this works is that every morning I take my dog up to the dog park where there's often dozens of dogs and almost as many people. And I connect with the people in my neighbourhood of diverse religions, diverse ethnicities, often Indigenous peoples and, and white Australians. And I seek to be a reconciling presence just by listening and learning and loving and being a presence in the dog, at, at the dog park every morning because I think that reconciliation begins locally. So make it concrete, make it personal, make it communal and begin by making it local. I'll say one more thing about making it local. Uh, in my particular street, um, I worked out there's probably something like 20 ethnic groups and about 15 religions represented. And I used to think I was not racist. If you ask me, I would say, no, I've travelled the world. I've listened to diverse voices. I grew up with Indigenous peoples. I'm not a racist person at all. But then a group of um, um, Iranians moved into our neighbourhood and they were a group of Iranian students and I remember that when this group of young Iranian men moved into our into our street about five houses up the street from us I suddenly changed you know I suddenly started saying things to my daughters like when you come home at night just let us know that you're coming home I'll leave a light on um, if you're feeling uncomfortable at all and I suddenly realized that my whole attitude about these Iranians who just moved into my street demonstrated a kind of racism that I didn't even know existed in my own heart. And I remember the day that I was going up into the bus stop and there was this, this young Iranian man who I got to know over the course of a couple of months. And one day he said to me, Graham, when I first came to Australia, people said to me, be wary of Australians because they're racist. But I want to say, Graeme, I'm so pleased that I got to know you because I realised Australians are not racist. And I felt like I was this big because I felt that suddenly I realised that if only he knew how racist I am. You know, and, and what I guess the reason I'm telling this story is that our examination of our own racism our examination of our own injustices, our examination of our own complicity begins not on a national scale, but it begins next door, it begins 
in our neighbourhood, it begins on our street. And recognising how our attitudes, our behaviours, actually nurture injustices that are then replicated or amplified nationwide. It's no secret that our society is highly divided. Uh, the political divisiveness is a microcosm of, of our culture. And the trend is to entrench into our tribes, reinforce our pre-existing worldviews. And, and our churches are becoming more theologically polarized you know, to the right, to the left. And, and our moderate churches are becoming few and far between with people leaving to go to the opposite ends of, of the theological spectrum. In the book, you're calling for relationships of reconciliation, forgiveness, and partnerships. But, but how do faith leaders do this when people are just as likely just to leave the church and join another church with no regard to who and what they've left behind, merely to just fit into a church that holds their worldview? Uh, Graham, we'll start with you. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's not an easy one to answer. Um... I think sometimes in church life, and it's it's replicated in colleges as well, so it's not just local church pastors that are guilty of this. Um, college presidents are as well. We have a kind of scarcity mentality where we we sometimes have this, this idea that we're competing with the church down the road or we're competing with the seminary in our city or whatever. But I've begun to feel that that generosity begins with our own spirit, that when I was a boy growing up, we, we used to sing that song, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mile. This idea that God is a God that, that you, you can't outgive. And I've become to feel more and more that if we want our people in our churches or our theological students to be generous, then we have to model generosity. And so when students are deciding to go to another college, I celebrate that. Um, when people decide to leave my church or go to another church, I celebrate them. I send them off with a blessing. I can't outgive God. There's no scarcity in the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of abundance. Um, and so, you know, for instance, you know, I, I got up and I spoke recently at a, um, I was asked to speak at a, a, a major conference in Australia. And they said, you know, get up and talk. And then when you get a chance, then start talking about Sterling Theological College, where I'm the, the principal. And at the end of the, of the session, I, I started talking about all of the other colleges in my city and how great they are and the wonderful work they're doing. And afterwards, people came up to me and they said, why would you get up and, and like talk about all the other colleges in the city and not your own college? And I said, because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You can't outgive God that when you bless and honour and serve others, then you will be blessed. And, and that's my basic orientation in life, that when we honour the voices of others, when we celebrate their ministries, when we amplify their gifts, and especially the least, the last, the broken, the silenced, the marginalised, those who are not often listened to, when we honour and recognise those voices, then God is a God of great abundance. And so it's true that when we proclaim a message of justice and healing and reconciliation of repentance, that people might up and leave and go to another church. But rather than trying to hold people, rather than clutching up at them with a desperation to have them continue to be in our own college or in our own church, we bless them as they go somewhere else and we stand with a, within a prophetic tradition that says no matter what size our church becomes, no matter how small our seminary becomes, we will proclaim the just, prophetic, liberating, uncomfortable message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll proclaim that gospel, we'll proclaim that message and we'll seek to bless and enrich all of the people of God and the whole world. So that's my basic orientation, and I hope that it reflects the heart of God. I just 
I really wish I had church members that left that are like your church members. Most of the ones that I've had leave the churches are friends. You know, they're they're leaving, scratching everything on the way out and letting it be known in a loud voice. There is no blessing on the way out is trying to catch their to- coattails as they, uh, you know, curse you mm. in every possible word. Uh, yeah. Grace, uh, you know, how do we how do we have these relationships of reconciliation, um, of restoration when when especially in America, there's a church, it seems like there's two churches in every corner. They're just going to leave and go to another church. How do we create these types of relationships within our church? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I've, you know, Koreans are known maybe, well, at least I know, we're known for breaking up. So, you know, that's why there are so many Korean churches here in the U.S. because, um, you know, it's one church and then people argue and then they break up. So it's very sad thing, but that has happened. And um, I know it has happened in Canada where I grew up and it happens here too. So it is a sad thing when people um, can't agree, can't um, accept one another and then they break up. And it's great if people break up uh, amicably and just leave quietly. But I think Andy, I've seen more of your side where people are kicking and screaming and destroying everything on their way out because they are so fed up with either the pastor or what the church is preaching. And it, it, it's a very sad reality um, that I have witnessed, I have seen, I have heard about and read about. And I think um, if we can just stand one step back and recognize why does the church exist? It is to glorify God uh, good Presbyterians will say, you know, why do we worship? Why are we here to glorify God? You know, the church is here to help us to worship, help us to understand and help us to live out the kingdom of God that we are called to do, to share the good news, to be the salt and the light of the world. And I hope people, when they um, experience maybe differences when they experience that they are being challenged, hopefully all these are good, like being challenged from the pulpit, being told to kind of work out these isms and problems, that we will take that as a good challenge, as um, to live out our faith. I think we all, you know, whichever church we are at, we have to kind of be there and understand, is this is the good news being shared? And I know at some places they're not. So I think if you are there, maybe leave quietly. But, you know, I think, you know, Andy, the question is important because there are so many churches here. It's so diverse. Even in the evangelical world, there's the right wing and the left wing. There's fundamentalists. There's all these, even within one. And, you know, I belong, I'm ordained PCUSA. We are very diverse too. And I think the diversity is good. I think we need to live with that diversity. I think we need to challenge when the good news is not being preached. You know, we can belong to different kinds of denominations, but I think if the good news is not being preached, I think we as members of the church can challenge that. So I think your question is a lot larger than it is, and it's really hard to to answer that kind of question. But, you know, our book is attempting to say, look, if there is racism, we need to work on this because God is a God who loves everyone. You know, uh, my new book, uh, Invisible, is coming out, which is an Asian American theology. I think as an Asian American living here in the U.S., we have been made invisible right from the beginning of our migration, right from the beginning when we were working as indentured workers, uh, when Asian women were brought in as sex workers, our identities have been marginalized, how we were viewed from by the white American society have been marginalized, and we have been made invisible, as if we are not made in the image of God. But if we can recognize that Mexicans, that Native Americans, enslaved African um, descendants, uh, recent immigrants from around the world, if we can recognize that we are all created in God's image, that God is not a white male God, 
if we can understand that not just kind of in a head level, but in our heart level, I think that will just reimagine the church. We would that would challenge all of our past history of our past doctrines that have been taught in our church and really work towards reconciliation, work towards forgiveness, work towards reimagining a new church. I think if we can experience that in our hearts, then I think we will become new. And, you know, scripture talks about being a new creature every day. I think that, you know, we can live out the gospel. We can live out the scriptural passages. We can live out the commandments that God has given us if we can recognize all those brokenness within ourselves. Um, you know, racism is intersectional in the sense that it is tied with uh, our understanding of climate change, our understanding of patriarchy, our understanding of ableism and classism. All of these are intertwined. It's not just a one-sided issue. It's this multi-sided, uh, it's an intersectional understanding of all these issues. So if we, can, if we don't compartmentalize these issues, when we realize why slavery was happening here in the U.S., why the indentured workers were treated that way, it's all these issues kind of working together. And if we can kind of unpack these issues and work towards healing our churches and ourselves and our faith communities, I think we can draw new people into the church. We can draw people who are seeking, you know, there's so many people, I write for Spirituality and Health magazine. They are these spiritual but not religious people, and we have a lot of those people in the States and maybe around the world too. I think we can draw, people are hungry for faith. People are hungry to know our creator who created all of us in God's image. I think we can draw people into the church, uh, into the faith community, because it is a community for all people, a community where broken people can come to be healed because God is the healer. It's not the ministers, it's not the elders and the deacons or whoever the rulers in your own denomination. It is God that heals us. And, you know, we may not be physically broken, but inside, spiritually, we are so broken. Mentally, we are so broken. And so we need the healing, and that healing can only come from God. I've got about two more pages of questions that I'm dying to get to uh, with y'all, but I know uh, we're bumping up against our time. So I'll, I'll just end with this last question, which is of these nine practices, um, what's been the most difficult for your own personal faith journey? Grace, we'll start with you. I think, uh, you know, I think they're, they're very difficult. Uh, but the one for me is lament. I think the Christian church uh, particularly the ones I've preached at or, or attend or have worked at, we as Christians don't take lament very seriously. So I never kind of grew up with the understanding of lamenting. You know, you read it in scripture and you hear the Israelites were lamenting. So it was hard for me to lament, but I think it's such an important practice. We don't have it in our Sunday worship. You know, we have time of forgiveness, time of, uh, you know, greeting, uh, praise and scripture and hearing the word of God and prayer, but we really don't have lament. So I think that was hard and it was wonderful to write it with um, Graham and be challenged by it. Uh, we wrote laments ourselves as examples in our book. And I think we need to do a lot more lamenting as a church because we need to lament to go into forgiveness and go into reconciliation. You know, they're not all steps, but we need all of these steps to kind of move together towards healing. So I highly recommend if you're going to just um, read one chapter, maybe read uh, lament and be challenged by it and practice it. Um, but I do hope that people will read the whole book and be challenged by the whole book. The book continues to challenge me too, even after I've written it with Graham, because it's an ongoing thing. We are not just healed one day, we are healed every day. We need to be challenged every day of our lives because we, you know, Christ calls us to be new beings. So, you know, yesterday I'm one person today. I, you know, I want to become better. 
and want to become uh, a newer being so that I can challenge those around. I can be the salt and the light of the world. Graham, what has been the most difficult practice of all these? Probably the most difficult one is the one uh, to do with reconciliation. And that's because much of what um, fuels um, polarizations and antagonisms and conflict in the world today is ideological. Um, and so when I look at a lot of the rhetoric um, coming out of the progressive camp or the conservative camps, um, while sometimes it's couched or clothed in theological or biblical language, its roots are uh, firmly ideological. Um, and a lot of the language doesn't sound at all like the language of, of God's or the vision that Jesus had on the Sermon on the Mount for a blessed, distinct, forgiving, reconciling, enemy-loving, generous, humble people. And so I think that's probably been the hardest one is me having to stop regularly and ask myself, how do my attitudes about people from different political or, or racial or um, theological or denominational backgrounds, how do my attitudes about them reflect ideal, ideological trends in society? And ideology is always competitive. It's always antagonistic. It always positions one group over and against another. And I think until we're willing to kind of look deeply at the way in which our, our racial and social and political imaginations, even our the theological imaginations, have been shaped by ideology rather than a vision of God's, God's kingdom, rather than a vision of the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be, as articulated on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll always find ourselves as God's people dragged into the, um, the conflicts that the world and the ideologies of the world want to drag us into. So it's probably been the hardest one for me because it requires a lot of personal examination of my own positions. The book is Healing Our Broken Humanity. The authors are Grace, Jean, Sun, Kim, and Graham Hill. You can check out some of their work by following them on social media. Grace and, and Graham, thank you for making the time to have this conversation, especially as we came together against radically different time zones. Uh, we are grateful for your call to live extraordinary spirit-empowered lives that change the world. It's thank been wonderful so to be with us. you. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.